Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with the biographer about his or her work. This time, the writer and professor Marsha Biederman. Her book is titled Popovers and Candlelight, Patricia Murphy and the Rise and Fall of a Restaurant Empire from SUNY Press. I asked her how she decided to write a book about this largely forgotten but pioneering woman entrepreneur from the last century. Well, I'm from Bridgeport, Connecticut, originally, and that is 50 miles away from Patricia Murphy's most elaborate restaurant, which is in Westchester County, New York, in Yonkers, New York, to be specific. And it was located on 13 acres of land and included award-winning gardens and an artificial pond and a huge restaurant that seated a 1,000, and there were always lines of people waiting to get in. And while they were waiting, Patricia supplied free picture postcards and free postage to while away the time and promote a restaurant. And a lot of my school friends sent me these uh, post picture postcards. And before Facebook and Instagram, that's how you bragged about places you had gone. So it was always an aspiration of mine to go there, too. I was green with envy uh, of my schoolmates who had gone to this fabulous destination restaurant. It was only one of nine that she ran over a 40-year period. So you had never been, and you learned about it. And how come you decided to write a book about her? No one ever had, right, Patricia? That's, that's, well, that's true in a way, except she had. She had written a memoir, uh, which was combined with recipes, although she wasn't a chef. She was just a restaurateur, but she could provide the recipes, which her staff had developed, and gardening tips, because she did uh, take a huge interest in horticulture and had gardens around her suburban restaurants. So, of course, the horticulturists that she hired could provide that part of the book. And she wrote about 100 pages about her life. And I saw this book, which had been published in 1961, in an antique store in upstate New York. And I uh, remembered the postcards, and I remembered having heard her name. And I was was always fascinated as a, a young girl by the name Patricia Murphy's Candlelight Restaurant, because It was a woman's name that was attached to a business. And in those days, there weren't that many women's names attached to businesses. So I bought the the book, uh, which, of course, was a used book, and I was fascinated by it. Now, some of it was hype, and a little of it was not true. But basically, it was this fascinating um, rags-riches story about someone who had come to the United States from Newfoundland, which is now part of Canada, but it was then a British Dominion. And she came with uh, $60, and she turns it into a fortune. So how did you go about, besides this memoir that she'd published, how did you find out more about her? Well, there are lots of newspaper articles. She had really been famous in her day, and she also always had a publicist. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, she was always building her brand before brand building was a thing. And uh, 
climb, you know, climbing the social ladder also because that was another way to get her name into the press. So she was on the society pages. There were features written about her. So there was a lot of press, and I was able to get all of that. But and a big breakthrough because she didn't leave many letters or notes behind or people didn't save them. They weren't preserved. There was no archive. But she had a, a brother, Jim Murphy, and he had worked for her until, to her surprise and shock, uh, after many years of being employed by her, her siblings, for a surprise, opened a rival restaurant copying her format and her menu right down to the popovers that her signature menu item and they opened this about 5 miles away from a restaurant that uh, she had opened in Manhasset on Long Island. Oh my. And had there mm-hmm. been any indication that there was a rift or did they I mean did they just do it surreptitiously? They, yeah, well he had quit but there is the the they had surreptitiously planned and opened the the whole restaurant, it didn't involve new construction. They had taken over a restaurant that actually they had intercepted a letter to her from a real estate agent who was offering her this location. And it was perfect as it, it already had ovens. It was ready to go. It was like turnkey operations. So they were able to set it up very fast, which they did. And uh, before she knew it, there it was open. And the breakthrough with my research is that uh, her her brother Jim's grandson lives in Brooklyn, where I, Brooklyn, New York, where I live, and uh, had a lot of oral history. He had typed out a whole oral history that he had taken from his grandfather, the Patricia's brother and rival, Jim. And this helped bring a lot of people alive that were figures, important figures in the book. Were you aware of the brother and the rift before you started writing, or is that something you found out in your research? Because that seems like a pretty major... Pivot point. That's a great question because she didn't mention the rift in her 1961 autobiography. She wrote the autobiography as if she were uh, not an only child, but one of two. She wrote mm-hmm. about one sister. She had three brothers and three sisters. She wrote about the one sister who was not in the restaurant business. Her youngest sister. Her youngest sister. She didn't have children. But Sheila, her youngest sister, was about 15 years younger than she was and was like a daughter figure. Mm. But the others just didn't exist in the book because in 1961, her mother was still alive. And it was causing her parents tremendous pain that there was this schism in the family. Oh, my. So this is not just a biography of a pioneering woman, but also of a family, really, and also a business. Um, How did you take... Um, all of this disparate information and synthesize it into the book that you created? Because um, that it could be, it sounds like three books in itself, right? Well, um, it was a rise and fall story, as the subtitle of my book indicates. Um, I think it had, a, it had a natural structure because she was building it from one little uh, dreary little restaurant that she had taken over in Brooklyn Heights, just as the Great Depression was starting, when she had exactly $60 left, you know, just about the amount of money she had come to the United States with. And it was either make a success of this or go back to Newfoundland, where her family was 
completely broke. They had sent her alone at age 23 to New York to try to not only save herself, but hopefully send for them. So uh, the, the, the racks to riches, the build, uh, it became an, she took over the restaurant and it became an overnight success. And it had been a failing restaurant. And it had failed many times under different owners in that space. And it was not an auspicious time in January 1930 to start a restaurant. But she, she had the magic of not cooking. She hired chefs, and she talked them into uh, believing in her because she really didn't have enough money to pay them at first. She created a party atmosphere. She's very good with decorating, with spotting talent. She had, like, great servers, her sister Lorraine at that time was not split from her and was a hostess. And Patricia and Lorraine would be out on the street beckoning people in. They, they're very charming. People are depressed, but they had to eat. In the depression, you had to eat. And she kept the prices down so that it was about the same as cooking at home. And she created what she called a party atmosphere. It was, you know, stepping out of the world of everyday experience. And uh, that was the key to all of her restaurants. It wasn't so much the cuisine as the environment. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like she, whatever she had embarked on, would have become a success just because of her personality. It, it was very personality-driven. Yeah. yeah. Why don't we know her name today? We now do because of your book. But why did this not carry on um, the Harvey Girls and the... A- yeah. Um, well, the Harvey girls had a film, so maybe that helped a little bit. Right, yes. Right. And the um, well, Howard Johnson, et cetera. Well, sure. Howard Johnson's became a franchise or operation, and maybe she should have turned into a, a franchise operation also. But she was a control freak. And so uh, she she would sell the rights to her name as she as uh, she sold restaurants because she didn't operate all nine restaurants simultaneously. Uh-huh. Sometimes she would have three going at once, sometimes four. And for, for a while, she only had the one restaurant in Yonkers. But when she sold the restaurant, the buyers always wanted to keep the Patricia Murphy name. They didn't just want to call it the candlelight. All of her restaurants became known in the vernacular as, as Patricia Murphy's, whether she was really owning them at that point or not. But she would just take one-time payments and then, uh, and then resent the fact that, that they weren't operating the restaurants up to her standard. She'd send spies or hear complaints and start quarrels with the people who had already paid her this one-time fee for a restaurant. So maybe that's partly it. It's partly that none of the restaurants exist anymore, and it's also that she— she preceded the world of television slightly, or there was television, certainly, in the 60s and the 70s, but she didn't make sure to appear on television. And I think my, a lot of the people we remember from that era did have a TV presence. She had a radio presence. Hmm. She had a radio program that she sponsored, which originated from her Yonkers restaurant. How long did it take you to do this book? I was about... A year of research on and off, and then it was three months of writing. It was really very easy to write. Her story is very compelling, and I was obsessed with that. If anything, my friends and family had to say to me, please, no more Patricia stuff. 
<laughs> were you teaching at the same time, or were you? Was this your main thing for through the three months that you were able? When I was writing, yeah. luckily, I I was not teaching, and I had retired. Uh, while I was researching, I was uh, I was simultaneously teaching, but it was you know, this was my recreational reading, consuming. Right? Did it make you want to eat? popovers? Uh, actually, I have baked some. Uh, they're pretty easy to make if you get the right pan. It was not about the food to me. It was about Patricia's life, having her own private plane, having a penthouse on, 90, on Fifth Avenue near 92nd Street at the same time. She had an enormous estate in Stewart, Florida, and a uh, luxurious apartment in Fort Lauderdale. It was yeah, really the personality of Patricia kept me going. Uh, yeah, I would hope, I would think it would have to. Yeah, she was, what a compelling, it sounds like a screenplay too. It sounds like a complete. Oh, I think it would make a great movie. Yeah, yeah. If anyone from Hollywood's listening. Yeah, give us a call, give us a call. And your next project sounds fascinating too. Can you talk about well, that? Well, my next book is coming out in September from Chicago Review Press, and it's called Scan Artist, How Evelyn Wood Convinced the World That Speed Reading Worked. Can you truncate the story? Can I, you speed uh, the story for us? All right. Well, I speak very <laughs> fast. Like, <gasps> Evelyn Wood Reading Dynamics was a system uh, of, of uh, reading instruction. It was, a, it was sold commercially, it, lar largely in the 60s and 70s. And uh, it promised that to triple or even uh, increase your reading speed by 10 times. And people believed that they could read entire books at the rate of 2,000 words a minute, 3,000 words a minute. Which actually, most people have a reading rate of, of about 250, 350 words per minute, which if you speed it up that much, turns into skimming. It's not reading mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's the story of how Evelyn Wood came up with this system, how she marketed it, and how she kept a hand in the business even after others bought her system for millions. They, they bought the rights to market it. When did she I, – I, I remember – hearing the commercials but when when was the period that uh the the height of it was in the in the 60s and 70s it lasted a, a little bit past that mm. uh but that was when it was most it was most popular and president john f kennedy uh was known as a speed reader now the evelyn wood marketers and this is people who took over even after evelyn was just a consultant to the company would constantly insinuate that Kennedy had taken her course. He hadn't. He had started another completely different course with, run by a different company uh, years before he ran for president and then said he picked it up or figured it out on his own. And he was in favor of speed reading, but he never had endorsed her, her brands. And even when people wrote to the White House while he was president, and asked him, uh, can you recommend a speed reading uh, course for me? He never, his staff never responded with the name Evelyn Wood, but she became very associated with him. Now, the Nixon White House did have her in to, to uh, instruct her aides. 
his aides, excuse me. And uh, Carter took the course, not from her, but from, from, you know, from others who were teaching her method. Did she get as rich as Patricia Murphy? No. As a matter of fact, she didn't. She and her husband and some partners had run the whole company on their own from like 1960 to 1962. And actually, they're very poor business people. Mm. They did open, like they grabbed market share. There were other speed reading systems at the time. And they successfully muscled everybody out by opening all over the United States very rapidly. But the expansion was too rapid. And they always had high-end rentals. You know, they wanted the brands associated with really nice office suites and beautiful classrooms, and they overspent. So they, uh, and they spent a lot on advertising also. And again, first they started everything as wholly owned subsidiaries and then realized that wasn't working and went into a franchising system. So it's some poor business decisions. So they ended up selling it uh, at a profit. They were set for they were pretty set for life in a middle middle class sense. Mm-hmm. They did not make a killing, and they continued running the franchise in Utah, which is where they're from. Uh, they royalty free, so they that was that gave them a good living for for the rest of their lives. And Evelyn had a disastrous career ending stroke. Um, toward the end of her life. Mm. Uh, but until then, they were involved in Evelyn Wood, but as franchises. Do you have another pioneering businesswoman? Well, You're- I have another 20th century woman who brought down a business <laughs> that I'm working on now. This is, it'll be called Joan of Arc in Pennsylvania. How Dr. Betty Hayes led 350 miners on a strike for clean drinking water. So Ooh. before Aaron Brockovich, there was Dr. Betty Hayes, who in 1945, uh, she was, much was written about her. She was very, very famous for just five months. So it's a kind of similar to, to Patricia Murphy in that it had been tremendous fame for a shorter period of time than Patricia, and then fell off the, the, the pages of the nation's newspapers. But she uh, was always described as blonde, attractive, girl doctor Betty Hayes. <laughs> Imagine getting away with that today. <laughs> wow. Fantastic. So you're romping through the 20th century <laughs> from a really particular lens, which is really valuable, especially today as we discuss gender roles and women. And you know, when I was growing up, it was the glass ceiling, which nobody talks about anymore. So it must be really a fascinating way to look at. It's good, but it's a struggle, to tell you the truth, because all, these people are no longer household words. So and is it hard to sell? It, they are hard sells, because uh, the Evelyn Wood book less than the other two ideas, because I can't piggyback off the brand that the person has established or that history is established for the person right. since, since, since they lived. But uh, they're great stories, and how are we going to have biographies about women if we don't do this? The thing is that it's not enough to have a Google doodle about forgotten women. It's not enough to have the New York Times do 
women we overlooked or people we overlooked. With the obituaries, yeah. Yeah. We need book-length explorations of these fantastic stories. And women are not going to achieve equality until readers and publishers get over this resistance to lesser-known figures. I try to introduce everybody in the first chapters of my book to something exciting, the high point of their career or the low point. And then back up from that. And I think readers are intelligent enough to give that a chance. Right. Just the publishers. We need that middle person there in between you. Right. Well, I'm grateful to my first two publishers for believing in me. And I hope Betty Hayes goes the same direction. And now, Marsha Biederman reads from Popovers and Candlelight at the 10th Annual Biographers International Organization Conference opening night on May 17, 2019, held at the Fabri Mansion in New York City. It was exactly one week before Thanksgiving 1961. The windows of Macy's flagship store in New York's Herald Square would soon be festooned with more than 100,000 red and green Christmas ball ornaments, and three miles of tinsel. Store holiday displays all over Manhattan were going to be unabashedly traditional, ending years of experimentation with modernist and Asian-inspired themes and prompting a newspaper to, to declare, it's chic to be corny. For now, other delights enticed passersby from behind the plate glass. Mannequins wore botany knit jackets over knee-length skirts, the Jackie Kennedy look. Guitars and Hammond organs were arranged under a banner announcing that the kids from The Sound of Music would take part in the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. Two windows on Broadway showcased washer-dryers, hi-fis, and TV consoles. The one-stop shopping craze had seized the suburbs, and even here in Manhattan, Macy's boasted of carrying everything from rings to refrigerators. On this day, November 17th, Macy's had something extra. An entire window on 34th Street was devoted to the display of a single book whose author would autograph copies at Macy's that evening. The title was Glow of Candlelight, and the author was Patricia Murphy, a restaurateur, or restauratrice, as her publisher described her, who over the previous three decades had opened five restaurants in greater New York and Florida. All had thrived. Still, an entire Macy's window was a lot of hoopla for the autobiography of a woman known best for her popovers. Airy rolls served from bottomless baskets by roaming attractive popover girls. By 4.30, two hours before the autographing session in the book department, Kay Vincent, the author's publicist, was a smartly dressed mass of nerves. Not that she displayed any as she left the department store's executive office. Everything was ready for the 5.30 press conference that would precede the book signing. Patricia's catering staff had laid out china, silver, a sumptuous buffet, and of course, orchids. The author, Kay knew, would be oh so slightly late for the press, though her Manhattan penthouse was just a short limo drive from the store. As one of Patricia Murphy's pilots would later say about her penchant for flying short distances more easily driven, with Patricia, it was all about the arrival. Kay passed the typing pool, blowing kisses to the clerks. 
Everybody knew her. She had headed up Macy's Public Relations Department until the previous year. She rode the escalators down to the fifth floor, digging in her purse for the notes given her by Patricia, a warm friend and congenial drinking buddy, but a demanding client. Even the trip's horticulture editor, though mesmerized by Patricia's gardens, found her to be, quote, an intense lady. That's writer Marsha Biederman. My conversation with her was recorded on Saturday, May 18th, 2019 at the Leon Levy Center for Biography at the City University of New York's Graduate Center during the 10th Annual Biographers International Organization Conference there. To learn more, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Cherie Newman is our podcast editor. I'm Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Bio.